Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody disgusting network. Coming up next is something indescribable, tantalizing, and mind-numbing. Enjoy. Smug. Confident. Secure because you are sane. Do you know what madness is or how it strikes? Have you seen the demon? The surge through the corridors of the crazed mind? Come with me. Into the tormented, haunted, half-lit night of the insane. This is my world. Let me lead you into it. Okie folks, I'm Frank Bonacci and I'm the scum of the earth. Happy New Year, everybody. This is the first episode I'm recording in 2023. Although this won't be the first to air in the new year, but probably closer to February. But that's more like a you problem. Well, YPMP, using those technical jargon. <laughs> Boogie nights. As me and Laura Wimbles talked about, me and my wife go on a months-long binge of vintage holiday-themed commercials and full programming blocks during the holidays. Like, when I say full programming blocks, I mean, like, somebody has recorded, like, here's December 27th on Fox 5 in 1987. I'm like, ooh, we love that stuff. And I assure you, I get all that stuff legally. I was wondering recently, what is the lore of this old media for me? Like me and my wife always like, why do we do this every year? Certainly a little bit of a nostalgia, definitely. But it's also like my interest in exploitation and that it really gives you insight into how our culture has and sometimes hasn't changed. I'm going to go across the street right now, but don't worry, I'm going to stay in the same neighborhood. I was watching an episode of Not Necessarily the News a while back. For those of you who don't have hair growing out of your ears yet, Not Necessarily the News was a sketch show that ran from the early to late 80s on HBO. It was like a topical news style spoof show about current events. And watching it, I realized that if you just swap some names around, the political landscape hasn't changed at all that much which you might find kind of sad, but I find oddly comforting, like, phew, this shit show is ongoing. This is nothing new. Okay. Also, a lot of the commercial that accompany the wonderful, life-altering Star Wars holiday special, not up for debate, show the time when America's manufacturing was taking a hike and going overseas, and all the workers and unions were making ads pleading for them to stay. It was a weird, sad turning point for America. Then Art Carney would come out and ad-lib some weird stuff in front of Wookiees, and he was clearly drunk. It's, oh, I love it so much. I love a Star Wars holiday special. But an arguably even better holiday special came out in 2013. And I'm so pleased and honored to have the creator of that here with us today. Aside from directing the simply incredible WNUF Halloween special, which is available from the good folks at Vinegar Syndrome, they made the adorable Call Girl of Cthulhu. What Happens Next Will Scare You, and most recently, the long-awaited sequel to WNUF Out There Halloween Megatape, which are all available at wnuf.bigcartel.com. There'll be a link in the description. It is my pleasure, from the land of John Waters, Maryland, Mr. <laughs> Chris Martina, thank you so much for coming on, sir. Thank you so much, dude. I appreciate it very, very much. Pleasure to be here. So the first time I heard about the WNUF special was when Jay Bauman from Red Letter Media mm -hmm. did a video about it. Yeah. Uh, was that like a big turning point for you? Like, what, what was the big turning point in this movie's visibility? 
So the crazy, the funny thing about Jay is I've known Jay since I was fourteen. And, Wait, uh, what? We, we, you? Yeah, yeah. So, but I, but I didn't know. Um, I didn't know Red Letter Media became Red Letter Media. So many, many years ago, when I was fourteen years old, I made a, a slasher comedy called Americill, and it was sort of like a you know shot on video. Like literally, I was like eighth grade, summer going into high school, and um, I made this movie, and I would send out tapes to other like like filmmakers that were making these little movies. I know this- about that collective because they talk about it in a documentary of uh, the ape one. I forget what it was called that they made a film and it was essentially, yeah, they, that's how they all met was yeah, through so- this, co- this collective of video people just uploading their stuff to each other. Hey folks, future Frank here. The film in question was Gorilla Interrupted and it came with an accompanying documentary called How Not to Make a Movie where they talked about how they all met through this video collective that I was just referring to. Thank you. Back to the interview. So it was like, yeah, it was this site called um, the Amateur Movie Database. And um, basically I met all these filmmakers. That was my first meeting other filmmakers at my quote unquote level in a networking capacity. And, you know, Jay was really nice. And I remember his early films were insanely funny. They were so wildly creative. And we stayed in touch occasionally. Like, you know, we'd we'd drop an email maybe every couple of years or so. But he had seen WNUF and he like reached out to me. He's like, dude, it's like, it's so cool you made this. And when he did the review... I didn't realize Red Letter had like such a massive, like I knew about the United States of No, like that they had done years ago and how, how that had had some clout to it. But I really didn't know. Um, I really didn't know how massive they were until that got us like so much recognition from that. But no, I think the couple of things from WNUF is the original that always comes back to me is when the New York Times did a story, but that was like about a month in. And then um, I was on um, NPR National on Halloween. Actually, the Halloween I proposed to Melissa, my wife, it was like the best Halloween ever. I was on a show called Here and Now, which is nationally wow. syndicated on NPR. And then I proposed in Sleepy Hollow, New York. So it was, it was a good oh, that's Halloween. great. Yeah. <laughs> It's honestly, it's always bizarre. Like I, you make this movie and they sort of like out, it's going to outlive me, obviously, but it's like crazy to think that we made this movie that like people watch every October as a, as a horror filmmaker. I can't think of a better, better reward. Yeah. I mean that it's, it's literally become like me and my wife always talk. Is it time for WNUF? It's like, no, not yet. Not yet. It's usually the closer. Oh <laughs> yeah. You know oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, of course with the new one out, it's like, now we got over three hours of this <laughs> in the stand that makes us so happy. That's awesome. Getting back to WNUF, though, I read a little bit about how you did this really fun, pretty inventive type of marketing where you were sending tapes, just leaving them in convention centers. What were some yeah. other like tactics you did to like get this film seen? Well, so, so originally it was the, the whole idea was to try to get people convinced that it was real early on. Right. So like first we I remember we uploaded it to. Um, and like. Some oh, other, you're, like, tor- oh, tor- you're tor- a, so you're. Um, oh. I was back. I back then. I was. I don't have an account anymore. Um, I probably didn't see it enough because I never understood how that worked. Um, <laughs> but um, no, actually, my buddy Charles actually was the person that uploaded it. He was one of our producers on the film. Did that, and then we made about fifty VHS tapes. We left them. I mean, I remember going to like you know throwing them out the window, going to thrift stores, leaving them there, and also um, the big one. I left a lot of copies that was uh, Severed, which is a VHS convention in the Poconos. Yeah, so we left a ton of copies up there, and uh, like most of the people that have them, like, that that are notable VHS folks, usually because they got them there. But no. It was, I mean, the whole point was to create a whisper campaign. And I think one of the things that we always struggle with with found footage movies is if it's truly a found footage movie and you're buying it with the UPC code, you're kind of ruining the conceit of the story, right? right. So by by making the VHS part of the distribution strategy or making the storytelling part of the distribution strategy, it really invites the audience to be like it's sort of like saying, like, come on, like, like let, let's 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 pretend it's, from the get go. Uh, and I think it gets people excited that way. It's like augmented. What is that augmented reality game? Yeah, 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 kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 
I had this for later, but I got to ask now. Mm-hmm. So you have George Stover in the film. Now, sure. he's Mr. Ravel <laughs> in my favorite John Waters film, Desperate Living. And of course, sure, he's sure. in a ton of Don Dollar films. Yeah, and yeah. he's just a local Maryland acting just royalty. Like he's been around the Maryland yes. acting scene for years. And the first film you had him in was What Happens Next Will Scare You. Is that true? Is that right? No, no, no. The first one we had with him in. And so basically we, um, so I met George years ago, probably about 20, God, 2007. So we were showing, I made up a lot of features that people don't even, you know, care about, which is fine. I mean, I don't give a shit. They're not very good. Um, but like, like, um, like out there, Halloween megatape is our, my ninth feature. Wow. So like the ones that came before President's Day are, are mostly forgotten now. So anyway, so what I'll say is, so George came to a local screening of one of our films. And I knew who George was. And he was like, I'd really like to be in one of your, your next films. So we put him in a, an anthology I directed called Grave Mistakes. And he plays a priest leaning into his uh, role in a female trouble. Um, <laughs> but I, and he, I made a joke. I was like, you think you can still wear that priest costume? And he was like, absolutely not. I could not fit in that <laughs> costume. But it, he was in that one. And then George, I think over time has sort of become, I, I jokingly refer to him as my third grandpa because he really is like a, like a close friend of mine. And I and I see him probably like once every couple months or so. Um, which I, I'm actually probably long overdue for a, a George Stover diner visit. He's just like been always like super supportive. And he's a huge horror fan. Like a lot of people don't realize like, like he is a, he actually ran some of the first um, or published some of the first horror zines um, that really? are well known. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I always forget the names. Uh, Black Oracle was one of them. And then Cinema Cobb, he published these. And these are like him and the Midnight Marquee team. Like they were all like Baltimore Towson. And there was a convention back in the day called FanX that those those folks really were instrumental in bringing fandom to the Baltimore area. And still Baltimore has a pretty solid like horror scene here. Uh, which leads me to that question. What is the filmmaking scene in Baltimore like? So it's funny when we were making the movies, like it's weird now because there's sort of this, um, I mean, I made out there Holly mega tape with a really small crew, mostly because we were doing a lot of it during COVID and I wanted to keep it small. Like there were a lot of days oh, where you it was shot just during me COVID. Wow. Yeah. A lot of it, a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, like, like we, obviously there was early on with the movie, there was like during lockdown, there were scenes where I would set up lights, audio, a gear and everything. The actor would come in, we would leave the costuming on the porch. They would come in, hit their mark. And we just do the interview scenes. Obviously there was like, like the Ivy Sparks fake tablet talk show that had to wait till after everyone was vaccinated, right. but it was crazy. But I'll say um, the filmmaking scene, you know, when we made President's Day, when we made Witch's Brew, um, when we made Call Girl of Cthulhu, like we had folks that were just excited to make these movies. And I really think, I mean, I, my my relationship to filmmaking really comes out of a very punk rock DIY type sensibility, right? Like I, I love making movies just because I love making movies. And like, it's not really done for financial gain. Um, these movies aren't very profitable at all, if ever, depends. You know, th- There was a thing where we would get people that were just so excited to work with us. And that was like the folks that we were making movies with weren't necessarily like full-time filmmakers. What ended up happening was around the same time I was making Call Girl, I had a job. I was a, I was a producer. Then I became a creative director at a, at a little digital ad agency. And I would I got nicer crew members because, you know, like these folks were essentially working for me on these like commercials or, or social content videos during the week. And they'd be like, oh yeah, we can give Chris another couple of days with, with no charge for his real movie or his passion project. And I think as that started to happen, and also as people, you know, went from being amateur filmmakers to being professional filmmakers, we basically, like we got pressure out of hiring them right so there is a right. really strong filmmaking scene in baltimore but ultimately like it's i don't even know if i'm really as much of that filmmaking scene as i you know because these movies are the movies i make are tiny budgets so i uh just had barry j gillis the director of things and he had yeah, the simil- yeah. he, it's funny he had similar things to say and i had when i was talking to annie Choi of bleeding skull those are yeah. our favorite filmmakers to talk about as the filmmakers yeah. 
who are just in it for the love of the game. WNUF definitely has that spirit. Well, it definitely was like a like a community vibe doing the original. I mean, that was what was sort of interesting between doing that one and this one because I didn't have. I mean, there, obviously there's a lot of people involved, a lot of actors, a lot of like you know some people did some of the fake jingles for the new movie, the sequel. But the original movie was a lot more like hands-on, face-to-face interaction with people. But I was going to say, no, I mean, some of my favorite memories are just, you know, in between setups or, you know, while we while we wait for an effects appliance to get put on or something, making these movies. Because that's that's honestly some of the only times you really, I mean, the joke is I find me hanging out with my friends is making stuff, right? Like, I don't really like go out and like, hey, let's go just like hang out and go to a bar with my friends. But, like, no, let's like make a movie or let's play a, a band or something, right? And that gets tougher and tougher the older you get because, uh, you know, people have mortgages and 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 marriages and kids and and you know it, it, that dynamic changes constantly absolutely getting back to the the ivy sequences was, was that the biggest cast in, that you've ever worked with i mean that those that's were big probably, scenes yeah that's probably so like, like ivy sparks the audience stuff was about 50 extras and that was basically after everyone was vaccinated or a couple months after everybody was vaccinated and then oh my god i always say that one of the variants hit and it was like, oh my God, then people still want to wear masks. That was kind of like, okay, just show up in a costume that make your, makes, motivates your mask. Like actually put a mask oh, on wow, or be yeah. a surgeon or something. <laughs> um, but it ended up working. It's it's not very noticeable, especially in years from now, I doubt it'll be noticeable at all. But I was going to say um, that was probably the biggest number of extras I've yeah. worked with. I, I had a lot of days on Call Girl of Cthulhu with um, a lot of cult members. Um, and that was really wild because everyone's wearing masks and like walking into each other because <laughs> of their, their vision is obstructed. <laughs> but no, that's I'd probably say, yeah, probably biggest audience or biggest crowd. How long did it take to shoot that sequence? Ivy Sparks? Oh, yeah. dude, that was quick. It was super fucking quick. So like, um, so the action, so the audience stuff was actually, so we shot all the, we built the Ivy Sparks set. Um, and for anyone who's listening, who hasn't seen the film, it's a fake talk show in the movie. Sorry, sorry. Um, thank you. It's all, it's all good. It's, um, it's like basically like, like, no, you're good. Like Ricky Lake, like Jerry Springer, like a nineties tabloid talk show. Yeah. So what we did was we built, my friend Sierra built a fake set for Ivy. That's like where we did all the guest angles. So we did all the guest angles first in one location in Baltimore city. And then for the audience stuff, we were supposed to shoot all of this shit in the same weekend. We were supposed to shoot this Easter weekend, 2020. And as we all know, that could not have happened because we were all under lockdown. So we had to cancel. Yeah. I had like the hundred, hundred some extras. We had a lot of extras. We were literally going to shoot on Easter Sunday. We shot all the guest angles in Baltimore. And then for the audience angles, I shot them in a completely different location. I mean, wow. about, about an hour. Um, and the funny thing is I got the idea from watching uh, Death Row Game Show, the commentary for Death Row Game Show. <laughs> the, the director talked about how um, he's like, oh, I just used audience shots from um, that I bought from the Muppet movie. And I just thought, holy <laughs> shit, if this guy can like use audience angles from like a totally fucking different movie, I was like, I can probably make this work. So basically what I did was- I, I had did, no I, idea. Yeah. <laughs> no idea. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, there's no shots where people interact. I mean, that's like the funny thing about it. I think it worked out pretty well. Yeah. I mean, those oh, locations yeah, are definitely. an hour away. <laughs> oh, wow. I love now the transition in Out There is uh, early 90s. But you mm -hmm. capture this really interesting time where local stations became Fox affiliates or, or excuse yeah. me, Ace affiliates. And yeah. I love that you see the transition and how the the local like programming changed more to more nationally oh, totally. program. Totally. I mean, I think about like my my local affiliate growing up was um, WNUV. And, ah. uh, and, uh, and then also WBFF, WBFF got bought by Fox. And I think Fox really represents the, the nineties more so to me, yeah. like nineties, like network TV, like that, just like, it's absurdly stupid. Like I think about things like, you know, revenge of the nerds, like their seven 11 promotion. Oh, like the three D. Oh, the three yeah, D. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have those glasses somewhere. You really, I but swear I to God, like, I do. But like one of the things, and like, I loved, I mean, like the local affiliate, like those first couple of years, they had the Fox, um, kids club and all this great stuff, um, with like lots of local tie-ins like they did this awesome haunted house at the fairgrounds by us but that being said 
I mean, like ultimately what I, what I wanted to do was when I set out to make the sequel, I didn't just want to like, I think a lot of people just wanted a haunted house movie again. And I had no interest in doing like, like I already, I feel like I already made my haunted house movie, right? Like right. Um, that, that's, that's going to function like a Legend of Hill House or, or something like, like, like a, like a spooky one house. And I, and I was trying to think about like what really encapsulates the nineties to me. And I think I, I really thought about this for a long time and I really sort of tried to wrap my head around like one from a standpoint of, you know, the supernatural, the occult or the paranormal. I really thought the nineties encapsulates a lot of that sort of like alien vibe or like like sightings like independence day so like making a movie that really was driven more by um almost science fiction components because i'd never really done something like that and then i would say the other thing there too was um the idea of the parents companies buying this like how do i represent what media evolved into into the 90s and i i think one of the most important things is, is that the widespread deregulation of media ownership in the 1990s like really changed the landscape quite it also you know rose into i mean if i make a part three they'll probably be heavily leading into the idea of like something like a fox news or something like that mm. so. i love that there if you watch both films together there is a story being told about yeah how our culture has shifted. And yeah. like I was saying earlier in the show, it really, that's why I really enjoy the films on that level. Like you really are telling a Thank story. You. And like there's the ideas of like, uh, internet's coming. I love those early yeah. internet ads. <laughs> and yeah. It really, that's why I love like getting back to old media. It really like makes you understand how we got here more yeah. so that like, that's why I watch those things. And that's, yeah. your film does capture that stuff beautifully. Well, yeah, I think it's interesting to talk about that too, because it's like also like as someone like you mentioned earlier, like watching just an old broadcast from like December 17th, 1987 from wherever. I mean, I do that too. You know, every year for the last, holy shit, God, every year for the last probably 15 years, I've done a compilation of like, basically I call it my Halloween video goodie bag, where I take clips from like local Halloween, ep like um, news broadcasts or like all these different things and just make them into little like hour long montages. But there's something so special about documenting a period of time like that, where you just like, it's like a time capsule, right? Yeah. And I think with the WF movies, one of the things that I've, I've found to be a true luxury is being able to make a comment about an era or a, a channel of, of information or media with the luxury of now. Right. Like in, in yes. if I was making if I was making the same movie in 1996, it wouldn't be as aware of its own um, uh, place and time or novelty. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, there's I mean, there's jokes you can make now that are like, you know, like I mean, even like with the original WF, the idea of like, you know, making up airplane ad with with the, tw the twin towers in it. Like, Jesus Christ. Like that's right. like, you know, that, you know, like things like that are like you can sort of play with audiences knowledge that exists in 2023, even though you're making a movie in about 1994 or 1996. I love that the ads focus on was the the ubiquitousness of 1-800-COLLECT-STYLE services. What yeah. was going on? that? And they had, when George Carlin did one commercial, I'm like, yeah. George, this is everything you're against, man. You need a paycheck that bad? He did. He did. His career was not in the best spot then. But it, you know, yeah. it's funny about that, though. It's like um, I always think about this one. Like there are certain things that kids today would never fucking understand, like the collect calling ads. I remember like calling my parents and not having money and obviously the collect calling, but then also calling your friends or something and be like on the count of the tone, say your name and you just say uh, maybe at the mall, <laughs> you know, and then just like, <laughs> yes. And then, you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, but things like that, like, God, that, that stuff like doesn't exist at all anymore or yeah. that most people don't know or they're, you know. Yeah. yeah. Or party lines on the phone. You ever get yeah. that where you're getting other people's conversations because you are sharing a line? That's like, a yeah, girl. totally. Yeah. That's so more weird. of an 80s thing more. Yeah. <laughs> so at what point in your life did you realize that you had a godlike ability to make puns and ads? 
<laughs> um, I, would say, I, I appreciate you. <laughs> I would say um, I really like making ads a lot. And I think that's partially like the idea of being a creative director at that ad agency was like, I loved coming up with concepts, like figuring out like, okay, what's, what's the goal here, right? Like, like, oh, we want, want to get somebody to buy something or subscribe to something or, but then going, figuring out like, what is like the incentive to do that? There's plenty of incentives to like, you know, scarcity, like, you know, like fear of missing out. But like, my favorite thing about doing that was like, you know, telling a fun story when I was actually making client work, that was fun. But what was fun about the WNF movies was being able to do all the things no one would ever let me fucking do. Like no client would ever agree to a commercial with like, you know, a mummy taking a shit. And I'm like, but I'm like, I will. I will <laughs> but it's definitely. great. I would yeah. buy that product. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say, and then the, the pun stuff, man, I've always just loved wordplay. I mean, like before I was making movies, or actually that's not true. While I was making movies, but still I was younger, I played in punk rock bands and I sang for a lot of like political hardcore bands and I loved writing lyrics. Like I just love, I love wordplay. I love alliteration i love i mean puns are just fun my brain generally works in puns like if i was talking to somebody and trying to fill the void somehow i'd probably just like zone out and come with puns me and my wife as we watch the film like it's i'm not here for the horror i'm here for the puns dude i'm sorry <laughs> but me and my wife when we watch it we just throw our hands up and go oh my god how does he keep coming up with these these are amazing <laughs> thank you <laughs> um now, the premise of the tape itself is that it comes from a tape trading yep. site. That's something kids don't uh, know about yeah. today. I used to love getting, you get in the back of Fangoria, you get like yep. ads for like yeah. Sinister sinister Cinema. And I'm so mad. Yeah. Sinister Cinema, I used to get like a catalog all the time. And I used to chuck yeah, it. It's yeah. like, ah, it's just why well, I'm never going to look at it. I would give anything to have those again. Yeah. It's just like, and that box art with the bat and the logo. Yeah. I used to love that. Well, and that's what's really have... funny. Yeah. Like, that's what's funny about those, those tapes. Like, I mean, like, I couldn't even like, I mean, I'm sure there were catalogs, like they're probably list like websites where they had all that stuff. But I remember getting my, I mean, the first tape, I think I talked about this recently um, somewhere else, but I, one of the first tapes I bought was um, a bootleg tape of um, Sam Raimi's short films. Uh, Within the Woods and like all that. Within the woods and like a bunch of short films he made, like um Cleveland Smith. Uh, it's like an Indiana Jones ripoff. It's like it's like it's very problematic now. But anyway, um, <laughs> that being said, I loved um, the idea of like like going through this catalog of things that I would never be able to find in Blockbuster or my mom and pop video stores or like even Suncoast Video. So like go, it just felt like being part of a secret society. And when I was making the new one, you know, I really wanted to lean on the idea of like again like thinking about how WNF was like inviting people to be part of the process as soon as they get the tape, like feeling they're like they're part of this sort of like, oh, this is like a secret special thing. The idea of basically having the movie come from Trader Tony's tape dungeon. So Trader Tony in the in the movie, um, he's not really in the movie. I mean, he, you get a bumper, but there is an audio commentary on the disc uh, with someone doing like, you know, providing audio commentary as Trader Tony, as if he's a real character. And that person is Henry Zabrowski of Last Podcast on the Left. Um, oh. as well. and, and, and your pretty face is going to hell. Um, Henry is just like, uh, he was a fan of the first one. I asked him if he wanted to be involved and he was like, hell yeah. And he was awesome. Like, he's just like the best fucking dude. And the commentary, I, I would have to argue, is 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 more entertaining, if not as entertaining as the movie. Like, I, his commentary is so fucking funny. And uh, that was a really fun process doing that with him. But the catalog stuff, like, I mean, that was my first real introduction into, into getting some of these movies that wouldn't have got other ways like you know getting like a fully uncut version of dead alive or, or brain dead Still, like, yeah the international you, cut. you weren't yeah you weren't gonna be able to get that Before, like, like at a, at a video so, store. isn't it so weird when you go on streaming sites and there's cannibal holocaust like yeah and, like on hulu i'm like what 
I yeah, used to, exactly. I remember hat, like finding that tape because you could never find it anywhere. That's how yeah. I first saw like uh, El Topo. And that's how I first saw mm. a lot of these films in these yeah. shitty tapes. And that's like, honestly, my preferred way to watch them still. Yeah. That's how I first <laughs> experienced them. Yeah. Um, the one thing I will tell you too is, I don't know if you have this. If you don't, I'll, I'll send you one. Um, there's a full catalog of from Trader Tony's Tape Dungeon. So uh, it like, comes with the special edition version. The v- it comes with the VHS. Yeah. So like we only have a handful of VHS tapes left to unit, I believe. But I was going to say, I made, that was my COVID project. I wrote a fake catalog of, you know, Kung Fu, um, horror movies, sci-fi movies, cult classics, triple X, um, wow. uh, non-exploitation movies. Oh my and it's God. it's literally 350 fake movies you can order from Trader Tony's Tape Dungeon. It's it's actually my favorite thing I've done probably in the last like five oh my years. God. And um, most people don't even know it exists because I don't talk about it much. Well, Chris, allow future Frank to talk about it some. Chris was nice enough to send me a copy. Folks, you need to get this. You just have to. If you're a fan of what we're talking about, you need to have this. It is so spot on. I'm just going to randomly go. I have it in front of me. I'm going to randomly just read one of these capsule descriptions of these fictional films that he wrote. Snipe Hunt. Super bloody action vehicle for former footballer convicted murderer Red Huller. He's a homeless vet who uncovers a terrorist coup and has a blast breaking bones and blasting baddies from a first-gen dupe that's been out of print since Huller shotguns his family. I mean, dude. All right, here's another one. They wouldn't just have movies. They have, like, bootleg concerts. Like, Nuclear Crypt, Cleveland, 88. Fucking sweet set from the titans of thrash metal. Legendary show, nice quality. If you're one of the people who knows what I'm, like, this kind of thing, it is perfect. And you owe it to yourself to buy it. Yeah, this really took me back. All right, back to the interview. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Because I was going to say, those catalogs, you know, I was a teenager when those days were happening. So yeah, you yeah, didn't yeah. have, money wasn't as, you know, plentiful as, you know, no, as yeah, an adult. Exactly. But I wanted to spend every dollar I had because the, the guys who wrote those are honestly geniuses because they'd sold yeah. you. It could be the worst piece of shit on the face of the earth. But I'm like, yeah. I need to see another Django movie. There's like 8 yeah. million Django movies. And it's like, I bought like five of them from there. It's like, this is another Django movie. It must sounds great. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I think about that too. I mean, there are certain times where you got something, you're like, why the hell did I spend? Because like, that's the other thing that was funny too. These were bootleg tapes and they would sell them for like 20, 25 bucks sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you're like, God, you're like, God damn it. Like, why do I keep paying for all these fucking bootlegs? Yeah. <laughs> but that's the fun one you found. The it gem. was fun. It was, it was, it was super fun. I mean, like, and it was really special. I mean, like, that's the thing I don't think. I mean, a lot of folks have been really angry with me because with the new movie, I haven't put it on streaming yet. And I don't plan to put it on streaming anytime soon because I really like the idea of having a physical release. You know, like people have been upset about that, but it's like, dude, like you don't get it. Like the whole process is having the extra features, the whole process is you getting this dvd and being like you know reading the liner notes and trying to get part of this bigger story and some people just want to watch a movie and i understand that and like you know they can they can do that but like as long as i'm self-distributing my movie i'm going to do it on my terms so yeah (laughs) we're in a weird time it's that we're moving away from physical media but physical media is also very collectible which is like funny that vhs tapes have kind of made a weird comeback where there's a lot of collectors as a collector's market for it now i do i agree with that completely yeah but yeah. uh, the streaming thing, it's I don't think people realize what they're giving away for convenience, like in movies mm-hmm. and in games is that you don't realize like these things are here today, gone tomorrow and streaming. And yeah. it's like you'll never and some things are just lost to time and they only exist yeah. on like 
these physical versions. Well, it's crazy too. Even if you download a version of something, like if you have the ability to download it, you really aren't downloading it. You're downloading it to that platform. Like that, there's so many things that like, I mean, don't get me wrong, space is limited. And obviously um, I know plenty of people that don't collect anymore because they don't have the shelf space, right? Um, but it's like, man, like I'm still a massive collector. I mean, I, I'm a big, um, I, I, you know, I still collect movies, but then I also collect, God, the one thing I collect that I wish I didn't ever, I just never started. I collect um, spoken word horror records. And I feel like, oh, oh my God, wow. I'm, I'm never going to listen to all of them before they fucking die. <laughs> I collect weird things. I've I've talked yeah. about my cereal box collection. I oh, collect, I'm, yeah, and how That's like great. the collector's market. And me and Annie Choi talked about this. It's like how it's getting crazy ah, in terms of people are nuts, man. It's and like, like you talking like here's the thing that drives the, the thing that bumps me out about it is um i like i like when people are excited i like when people are stoked about something i never want to dismiss someone's passion but the thing that i always come back to with the collector's market is there's these inflated costs and they're inflated by some people that do really want stuff but then some people that are trying to make profit right so it's just like like i i, I some of the vhs stuff is so absurd to me like sealed copies of vhs tapes going for like thousands of dollars i'm like come on guys you see the back like, to the is, future one that just yeah. went yeah it's not That's fun ridiculous. anymore it's just like it's like so it's it's just sad yeah it's tough it's like, like it's beanie babies part two you know yeah. <laughs> like i there's one time i had a copy in my hand of tales from the quad dead zone <laughs> if you've ever heard of that that's just oh yeah Turner, of course yes. i have yeah yeah and uh i didn't take it and if i only yeah. knew that i had a golden ticket because that movie... but see that's that's what's crazy though too like a lot of those sov horror movies um that you and i would be like oh my god that's worth hundreds of dollars or whatever those are the ones that are like staying relatively at like maxing out at a certain level whereas i feel like some of these really common tapes are getting higher and higher and i'm like why have like is it just because people like have this like i don't know it's people are buying back their child like it, it's it's yeah, a cycle yeah. i mean we're all yeah. buying we all in a way buy back our childhood it's yeah it's just not the same in that regard where it's like it's a real financial commitment but it was just so much yeah. fun like uh, the example I gave with Annie was I had a copy of computer beach party that I had for like years that I bought yeah. for probably like a buck or something like that. And now yeah. I, I went to rebuy it and it went for, I had, it was like a hundred and change. And I'm like, Jeez. computer beach party. Who That's wants crazy this? though. I thought like there's somebody else that wants this. <laughs> That's crazy. In terms of found footage, the original, everybody often compares to ghost watch. Uh, mm -hmm. which is the big British thing. This one, if a uh, little bit Mc, the McPherson tape. Okay, so it's funny. Um, I've never seen McPherson tape. Okay, just um, making sure. Okay. <laughs> um, I know it's, I know, for what I know about it, it's like a birthday party and then they see aliens, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Ghostwatch, I had never seen when we made WNUF. Um, I watched it actually for the first time. Like I, I, I'd started a couple of years ago after WNUF kept getting compared to it, but I didn't finish it. Um, and then I watched it all the way through this last... Um, September because I was on a podcast with uh, Leslie Manning, who mm. was um, the director of Ghostwatch. And she was super wow. sweet and very kind and like just like an awesome, awesome lady. And I think Ghostwatch is great, but I think also it's funny. You know, you can sort of compare those two movies, but like even though the conceit or the sort of general thrust is the same, they're so totally different. Good. And I think exactly. what they're trying to do is a lot different than what I was trying to do. Yeah. I was uh, joking. It's just the um, thing that yeah. people always, it's always the frame of reference people have with that. They always just point to that. It's like, oh, it's like Ghostwatch. I mean, I'm guilty of it yeah. too because it's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not offended by it. I mean, no, no. I, the only the, the only thing I care about is when people are like, "Oh, you ripped it off," and I'm like, "Dude, I swear to Christ, I, I did not Does know that about happen? it." Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on, <laughs> I would not have I would have not wasted like a fucking year of my life making a movie if I thought I was just ripping <laughs> off something else. I love the references to like. There's little fun references in here, like uh, Officer Book Walter. Yeah, uh, I love that name. I love that you use that name and Yuzna. 
I love those, yeah, yeah, yeah. those directors <laughs> that I'm a fan of that you point out. I've subscribed to uh, your wife, Aurora Gorealis, uh-huh. uh, her channel. And you guys last year were at Blobfest yeah. in Phoenixville. And I've been there and that uh, I've never oh, actually been best. to Bart. I've never been to Blobfest. My, oh, you gotta go. I know. My wife is her has a hard host persona for anyone listening. She has a hard host persona called Aurora Gorealis, and she does a show called Shocktail Hour. And um, she actually hosted the Blobfest runout. So basically, Blobfest is the town where they shot the Blob, the original. And it's she awesome. did the runout. That's so awesome. Yeah. And dude, our, our band was the house band. So I play. Oh my um, God. I, yeah, it was awesome. So like the Friday night of Blobfest, this weekend f- festival celebrating the Blob and sort of 50s monster movies. They like, just like in the Blob, everyone runs out of the theater screaming. We do a whole Friday night show. And then at the end, you sort of stage this monster coming to the theater and then everybody runs out screaming. And the, the news cameras come every year. And um, our band Beach Creeper, which is like a surf punk band, we we were the house band. And then Aurora, Melissa, she she sang all the songs. So it was fun. That's awesome. I've been to the Colonial Theater. I was it's shooting. Great. Yeah, it's amazing. I was like, wow, this is a beautiful theater. I was shooting. Uh, I was. I used to do Grip and Electric, and okay. I was doing a music video there. Mm-hmm. And it took me until the second day because I'm a slow person. I just went. Seems to be a lot of Blob stuff in this place, and I'm a fa- <laughs> I'm a psycho Blob fan. Yeah, I've talked about the Blob on my other podcasts, like this, especially the re- the remake too. I love is uh, adore both of them. But nice. uh, I'm in there and somebody finally pointed out, it's like, you know, this is the theater that they shot it. Right. And I lost my goddamned mind in that <laughs> place. I they have the uh, I don't know if you were there. They had this. They had the flip books where they show people run. They run out. They actually show oh, yeah, run yeah. Out each year and each year they have a little flip. They make a flip book of the run out which is the most adorable thing I bought. Yeah. I bought a bunch of those. I just started buying. <laughs> I made no money on this job because I was just like, once I realized I was in this sacred place, I fucking just bought every piece of work <laughs> I had. Nice. Did you shoot on a period appropriate camera for this or did you shoot on modern no. equipment? Yeah, so the original WNF we shot on a little bit of VHS, some SVHS, and then um, DV cam mostly. So still the big electronic news gathering cameras, but like it was it was it was digital tape. But then the <laughs> new one, the new one, I shot a little bit of on DV tape, and then most of it was shot on DSLRs, but at an adjusted frame rate. And the reason why I had to do that was because. When I realized when COVID was starting to hit, well, there's two reasons. One, the commercials in the 90s, I knew would have been shot on film a lot of them. So I just filmed, yeah, I filmed transferred them. transferred to three quarter yeah. inch tape. Yeah, Ex- exactly. So like, um, so basically I was like, I know I'm not going to shoot on film, obviously. So I'll, I'll shoot them on DSLRs because I can just make that look like film and it'll be fine. And then the, um, the stuff that was video, I just changed it to 30 frames a second to make it look like video. But ultimately when COVID hit, I knew I wasn't going to be able to have the crew and the time that I wanted to do to, to, to work with like old gear. I mean, I had planned to shoot it on a three chip, Almost like the like GL1 or GL2 to do it because I felt like that would have emulated the look. What we ended up doing was we shot 4K, but then I would deliver in standard definition. So in, in 4K, a wide shot could go to a fucking close up. Like I literally could shoot the same thing and punch in. And uh, wow. it was actually, it was incredibly liberating because I could do a zoom anytime I wanted it in post. And honestly, <sighs> like, you know, the whole movie gets run through a VCR three or four times by the end. You really I can't tell. Could could not tell the difference. If yeah, you would have, yeah. you could have just sat here and lied and said, yes, we did. And yeah. I would have not known the difference. <laughs> I, I mean, occasionally some people do get really upset that they're like, you didn't, you shot it digitally. And I'm like, I don't have to fucking tell you. <laughs> like it, it doesn't look much different. As a film fan, film or video? What, what do you mean to shoot on or just like... in general? For me, it's video all the way. I can't stand film. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I mean, know I, that's I, a horrible thing to say, <laughs> but it's like I would. I've worked with both, 
uh, yeah in my time and it's like i just understand video better you know what i mean like I think, film just never yeah. worked for me well so for me it's like i shot film a couple times i shot a bunch of um 16 millimeter shorts in film school or not a bunch probably like three and i liked working with film because i liked the 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 texture and the aesthetic but ultimately Absolutely. like you can't make you can't risk as much because it's so you're burning money you know if money was not an issue i would love to shoot on film more but honestly i do like the immediacy of video and there's just fun things like there's chances you could take with video because it's the stakes are lower i mean you, if you're gonna if you're gonna be an independent artist you're gonna make these low budget movies you're gonna want to take a lot of chances because that's why people people take chances on low budget movies because you're taking chances right so digital makes sense to me it's like oh yeah i could just i understand i understand the digital world much better i don't now, know why it just it makes more sense to me <laughs> now i will say this i do love film projection like i i, I collect yes. um i collect 16 millimeter film prints and i have a my basement mm. is full of them um actually that's funny you know brought up george stover earlier george stover and i i mean he's like he's a massive film collector as well he has a whole basement full of 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter films wow. um yeah so that's like that's one of our bonding points yeah <laughs> another thing that i got priced out I, I was collecting trailers for movies oh, for a yeah. while so i had like yeah, yeah. caliber trailer gremlins nice. trailer 35 millimeter and it's just like i got oh fun. shit yeah. yeah. Well, the funny thing now about those those movies like that, you might spend like, you know, depending on the trailer, 50 bucks or 100 bucks on a 35 millimeter trailer. But the thing is, most people don't have 35 millimeter projectors. Yeah. So the features from a ratio standpoint might only go for like a grand or two grand, depending on what it is. So it's like kind of crazy when you think about a trailer it's, being incrementally like not. Yeah, it's just it's a yeah, it's a strange I don't know where I was going with that. Never yeah. mind. Moving on. I can cut that. I cut. Believe me. Watch how I edit this. It's amazing how I. You'll be like, "Wow, he's coherent." Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Yeah. What are some of your favorite filmmakers and uh, influences? So I think for the horror stuff, I mean, I was massively influenced by Jared Bookwalter. Like that was some of the movies when I realized, oh, people can make these little micro budget movies and make them really fun and smart and like just really like like had a strong language of film. I'll say um, I loved the movie. Like I lo I've always loved Eric Stanzi's stuff um, mm. for, like for his whole career from for standpoint of the low budget horror, micro budget stuff. Uh, but my favorite filmmakers, I mean, my, my favorite movie of all time is um, Harold and Maude. Oh, um, I love that. Like, so, like the rest of other favorite films are things like, I don't know, like um, Lady in White, Jack the Bear. Um, Jack the Bear say. is brutal, dude. That's dude. Such, a, it's such a Danny, Danny DeVito. DeVito. Danny yeah. DeVito loves wallowing in shit. I love him so much for that. I love that dude, he it's... like he really gets into that is the most depressing movie ever, <laughs> Jack the Bear. I love it for that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, I, it was one of those movies that I saw, like, I guess I watched it initially when I was a kid because he played a horror host. Uh, but then it's like the movie is like is like is so wrapped up in all much like so much great stuff. But yeah, I was, I was trying to think like um like filmmakers generally that I, I mean, like, you know, the, the typical boring answer is like Wes Craven, John Carpenter, things like that. <laughs> um, I used to love like Todd Salon's stuff, his earlier movies I used to really love. Then like la last couple movies. Happiness is amazing. Storytelling. Yeah. Happiness is a movie I have not made my wife watch yet. It's like, okay, it's a comedy. Yeah. <laughs> kind of about pedophilia but yeah, right, I swear right. it's worth your time I met him once and he was he was such a character man like and it's funny years and years ago I had I had got a copy of um his first movie um fear anxiety and depression which is like never come out again from, from as far as I know and he's in it and I realized holy shit he's actually his character like he actually talks like it blew my mind <laughs> what's next do you have anything that you're looking to do next 
So it's funny. I always have sort of like three or four things that could happen. So I'm I'm currently writing or not writing. I'm currently doing like a polish on something else my buddy Rob Walker wrote. So we're actually thinking about doing like a almost like a like a spin-off of the WF sequel called Trick or Treat with Reed Richmond, which would basically just be like a history of Halloween with Reed Richmond, George Stover's character from the sequel. Oh wow. Um but it would just be like an hour Halloween special. And it's not a movie. Like it's literally a Halloween special about the history of Halloween. You don't have to hard sell it. I got it. So George Stover. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm the in. other two, the other two that we're working on that I'm developing is one, I have a Christmas horror movie that's very much in the WNF world um, mm. that I'm working. I'm writing with Michael Verratti, phenomenal, phenomenal writer. Then the third thing that I'm currently, we literally just had a call earlier this evening. Uh, my wife and I might be co-directing something with a decent little bit of budget, but I can't talk about that yet because it's not, it hasn't gone, gone. It's a, it's a mockumentary, uh, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, What's your favorite part of the process, uh, directing, writing, or editing? I would say, I'd probably say editing because that means it's close to the, the right answer. Line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, honestly, like when you think about it, like movies really are, are the, like, obviously a movie gets made three times, right? When you write it, when you shoot it, when you edit it. But the thing is, ultimately, editing is the final control valve of deciding what gets in the movie. It's the part that I, the pressure's off because production, I, yeah. I flop sweat and shame spiral <laughs> all my entire way through production. And <laughs> editing is where it's that fun, rewarding feeling of fixing the yeah. shit that I screwed up on and it, like finding exactly. ways that actually, wait, this actually works better now that I screwed this up. Yeah. Uh, well, and also I think editing that, that can show you, oh, I need to reshoot something or I need an insert in right. shot. Like I, I do really like writing. I think directing is fun when I have a good producer and when I really have the ability to like focus just on directing. When you make low budget movies, you're always kind of a producer, right? Yes. So like, um, like you always, like you have to have that brain no matter what, or you'll, you'll, you can't be a diva when you make a movie for, you know, peanuts. So yeah, and it's just like as an editor, I think it makes you a better director because it's oh, hundred like, percent. Don't, don't need. I, don't, I, I have friends who don't edit who are directors. I would like, never why understand. Would you do that? Yeah, I would never understand a director that doesn't have an editing background. Like I wouldn't trust them. Right. It's like, how do you? Yeah, I mean, like that sounds awful, but it's kind of true. <laughs> yeah, it helps me work and figure out exactly what I need. Yeah, like you know, yeah, especially yeah. like you know, in the low budget world, you're never gonna get it the way you want it. So yeah. it's like, what can I do? What do I need to get? And yeah. there's like all those compromises. But when you have that editing background, I think that really does help you navigate through that. Where I've watched a lot of guys, you know, face plant because they just didn't understand that that element yeah, of it. Exactly. Uh, do you have a dream project if money wasn't an issue? Money wasn't an issue. Um, I was asked this. I mean, you know, it's funny. I think what I'd really love to do is I'd love to turn Trader Tony's Tape Dungeon into a TV show. Oh. Um, like really want to do that. And that's like, oh. we've been talking to people about that, but I don't know if the money's there. So like if anyone has deep pockets, yeah, come talk to us. Listen, um, <laughs> throw this guy some scratch. If anybody, yeah. if anybody <laughs> is listening, who's got some pockets. Open um, up I, was gonna, guy. I was going to say other dream projects. I mean, like, I don't know. I, um, you know, I, it's sort of funny. I always come into projects. Like I've sort of embraced the fact that no one's going to give me real money. Right. So I've always embraced the fact that no one's going to give me real money. And knowing that, I sort of come up with ideas for projects that I can do cheaply or no one is stupid enough to put money behind. So I just say, <laughs> oh, like, like I'll just do this weird mockumentary or, oh, I'll do this weird movie shot on uh, or it looks like an old videotape because that's ultimately like that's the benefit to making these little movies that I can I'm in full control. Yeah, you don't have to make those concessions. I've watched uh, I have friends who've like worked on bigger stuff and. You know, when you're dealing with the money people, 
there's just things you have to do. And it's just like, and it's, it's, that's just part of the, that's just the way it is. It's just like, you have to make those concessions and, and yeah. they're never happy about it. And that's, what's fun. Like when I made my feature, it was just this, it was, it costs so same thing. It costs so little that it was just like, okay, for good or for ill, this is all me. You know, yeah, and that's a yeah. good, that, that there is that fun feeling to it. I think I could get, get your invite to it. If you need one, if you need a new one. <laughs> I don't, and honestly, man, I don't, I like, I like my watch me box is like overflowing with DVDs and we have four streaming services. Like, I don't, I don't, like, honestly, like if I really need to find a certain title, I might just be like, Hey, Hey bud, can I get a, can I get a download of that? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, hit me up. I'm the guy that every, most people hit up when they can't find something. So yeah, just, if so you, funny. just know, that's use me funny. as a resource if you ever need, <laughs> sir. Okay. Thank you so much for being here today. I, Absolutely. I, everybody who's listening, please go to wnuf.bigcartel.com to pick up the out there Halloween mega tape. It is so good. If you're a fan of WNUF like I am, you're going to love this. Oh, Thank uh, you so much. I love um, some of the returning faces for WNUF. I love the whole bizarre arc of Phil's carpet warehouse. Yeah, this, yeah, yeah. That's fantastic. And of course, Gavin and Deborah. I was oh, like, nice, hope, yeah. like when I got so nervous, I'm like, we're not going to see Gavin and Deborah because they don't show up till pretty late. And I'm like, when they showed up, it was a fist pump moment. It's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it.